have you been zombified by the digitization of humanity? I mean, that's I guess that's happening right now, right? As we're recording our voices. Oh, fuck. You're right. Yeah, we're so, actually digitized. So by the time people hear this, we'll be digitized. <laughs> and so, yeah. In fact, what you are experiencing now is the digitization of both of us. Yeah. Yeah, pretty weird, isn't it? It is pretty weird. And then if you like go on Twitter to interact with us later, then we'll be interacting with digitized versions of you. Yeah, yeah. So. Oh, and then when we were recording this podcast remotely, I mean, still we sometimes do. Like we were all digitized versions of ourselves interacting with each other. I mean, the whole pandemic, we were all. We were. We just were interacting with digitized humans. Oh my gosh. And so I didn't even realize that this was going to go this way when I said digitized digitization but, but of a, humanity. But it a, is. It yeah. is a thing. Yeah. And it's so it's not just digital hu- humans is not you know digital humanities or whatever whatever the topic is a large topic that we are talking about today with Liz Grumbach. Mm-hmm. And we're actually technically not talking about it with her today we're pretending we're talking about it with her today but we already recorded it when i say we i mean like including everyone who's listening to us we're like metaphorically the people in the future the future versions of ourselves that will be listening to the past versions of you and i talking to a, a past version of liz Saying things that Liz may not even believe anymore. You and I might not even believe. Who knows? Dave, this is getting so meta right now. And I don't mean Facebook, Instagram meta. I mean like actual, like 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 the actual meaning of the word meta. Yeah. Which is like being about the thing that is the thing. That's Okay. Well, speaking of which, about me, I am your host. Athena Actippus. I'm a psychology professor at ASU and the executive producer of Zombified Media. And this is the voice of your co-host, Dave Lundberg-Kenrick, <laughs> uh, uh, creative director for the psychology department at Arizona State University and um, digital humanity enthusiast. Are you an enthusiast of digital humanity? Oh, yeah. I think it's fascinating. So this is like, this is totally the sort of thing I geek out on. So, um, and and especially what we talk about, quote unquote, today um, <laughs> with... With Liz Grumbach, our guest. Yes. Um, about like how humanity has been digitized throughout history, right? Yeah. I mean, a lot of it is kind of just about, you know, thinking about the humanities and us as humans interacting with information in a like through a new lens and thinking simultaneously about sort of like the very human side of it and then the side of it that's like coming from like how do you take information and put it into like non-human form so it's like a little cyborg-y kind of in a way right so she describes it as sort of putting Shakespeare on iPads right well she says that like that's kind of what you know what it used to be but now it's so much more than just putting Shakespeare on iPads right yeah it still plays into a lot of these questions of who gets to be on the iPads of the future of the future. Yeah. Um, yeah. Allocating future space. Yeah. Speaking of the future, right? Like where, where is it all going? Like, how are we going to navigate through this increasingly kind of murky set of issues about like what gets 
digitized, what doesn't, how it is or isn't made accessible to people. These are all questions that we deal with in today's show. That's true. And, you know, one of the things that I really like about today's show is it's sort of really optimistic where it's like, you know what, now that we have these new technologies, like Liz talks about some really interesting ways that she and her crew are using that to sort of give, quote unquote, a voice to people who have been voiceless um, in the past. And so I really like that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I love this episode. It's always so fun talking to Liz. She just brings amazing energy to everything that she does. And so oh, isn't she also the host of some sort of some sort of web streamed show like what is that called? Do you know what's something about history and zombies? Are you talking about Channel Z's Zombie History That's by any what it chance? Was. Yes. Yeah. So <laughs> Dave is referring to our live stream channel, Channel Z, where we have all sorts of awesome shows, including a show called Zombie History, which Liz co-hosts with the awesome Mozilla Kazi Kone, um, and it's all about uh, unearthing buried stories of the past and uh, looking at things through sort of the lens of zombification, looking at complex issues having to do with things like slavery and labor and, you know, inequality through the lens of zombification. And the ways that we're sort of zombified by the ways those stories have been told, right? Um, Yeah, we're zombified. There's so much meta-zombification going on. There is a lot of this. Oh, that's the first time we've said meta-zombification. I think maybe it should be a thing. Yeah, maybe, maybe. So, (laughs) all right. All right, well, let's hear from this week's Fresh Brain, Liz Grumbach. I know it's crazy, but it seems so logical. Try to fight it, but it's something psychological with you. Makes me act the way I do. I'm not trying to be over-analytical. Retracing time to remind myself how ugly this could be. But something else is taking over me. Liz, amazing to have you here. Uh, Would you tell us in your own words who you are? That is such a complex question, and I'm so excited to answer it for only y'all. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Only Athena and Dave, and I guess everyone that's listening. I'm Liz Grumbach. Uh, I work at Arizona State University. I manage the digital humanities and research portfolio of the Lincoln Center for Applied Ethics. I've been working in the digital humanities for over 12 years, which um, has been a wild ride. Um, I think that means in my field that I'm mid-career. I talk to a lot of my folks that are mid-career in DH a lot. Um, There are generations of us um, in my field, which is really cool. Awesome. Uh, So digital humanities, just Mm -hmm. for the uninitiated, what does it mean to be a digital humanities scholar? Like what kinds of things do you do on a day-to-day basis? 
Oh, okay. So uh, my first mentor in the digital humanities told me to always start by saying the digital humanities is about teaching um, people how to read Shakespeare on iPads, but that's not really that's how, not how right. to that's how to read Shakespeare, how to read on, Shakespeare iPads. on iPads. <laughs> Again, this was twelve years ago. So, um, so twelve okay, years so ago. Twelve years ago, that was digital was humanities. DH, yeah. But now, now. Um, DH is this, is this growing weird amorphous thing that means so many things to so many people. Um, it could mean using digital technologies to investigate humanities methodologies, or it could mean critiquing with humanities methodologies, um, technology. Um, I think I said that right. I think that uh, in my early career, I did a lot of that first part. So I did a lot of kind of using digital tools and programming and um, high uh, performance computing cluster stuff to do a lot of data analysis to make some conclusions about humanities questions. Um, what my career has turned to, because I came to ASU to do this kind of work, is this notion that humanities can help us say things about technology that can make an impact on society, on culture, on the way that we live and the way that we understand how we move through the world. Cool. So basically, like technology is a tool for helping us understand ourselves in a way. Oh, that is so beautiful. And I'm going to like just clip that and use it whenever someone asks me what digital humanity <laughs> is. Okay, perfect. Thank you, Athena. Um, I'm going to write that down in my journal, um, study it, put it on my mirror, read it every day. Thank you. You can make a cat poster out of it. <gasps> perfect. All right. Uh, so, okay, so tools to use to understand who we are and our place in the world and maybe the challenges that we're facing. So, like, if you had to choose one, like, big insight that you've had over the last few years about how to use technology to understand us, where would you start? Okay, so when I first got here to ASU, I want to talk about this project that I did with a colleague, um, Jacqueline Mortemont, who's now at Dartmouth and doing amazing work. Um, Y'all should look her up. When I got here, we decided that we wanted to use these tools to investigate data to like re-embody the lives of people that were contained in that data, um, to uh, release them from quantified abstraction is the phrase that we used over and over again. So we decided, which now it's five years later, uh, we decided that what we wanted to do was take a look at the 1918 flu pandemic and the effect that it had on Arizona communities, which in the past couple of years has just been amazing to look back at because we found by looking at these digitized death certificates, all of this information about who was counted, who wasn't counted, um, what communities were affected the most by the pandemic. And it turned out to be things like mining communities where they didn't have a lot of access to healthcare. Um, we found a almost complete lack of indigenous peoples in the official record. And we had to reconstruct from this research in oral histories about what actually happened on the reservations. So I think that what that project taught me and has kind of led into the work that I'm doing now is that there are stories that are hidden in the data that we have. And we need to figure out where those invisibilities are and interrogate them. Otherwise, we will not have a complete understanding of history. Um, we're, we're kind of losing that as we move towards this 
focus on data-driven technologies and uh, and uh, kind of the understanding of culture as data-driven. That's a, that's amazing. I, I mean, really powerful to think about. You know, what are the invisible things that you are missing if you're just looking at the data that's collected, right? Because anytime you're collecting data, you have some methodology for how you're collecting the data. And that's going to be influenced by lots of things, including, you know, what the practices are at the moment and what the assumptions and norms are at the moment. And thinking of that just as a broad bias as we move forward with things becoming more and more you know, based in data, it, I mean, it's, Mm -hmm. it's fascinating. It's also, it's also kind of scary to think like, well, what are we, what are we missing? Yeah. Well, I mean, and what have we been missing? I I actually, my reaction is the data. I'm like, oh, this is exciting because when I hear this idea of using iPads to, um, to show people Shakespeare, right? That is a, somebody who has had a very amplified voice, throughout history, right? And so this was sort of an interesting question of, oh, maybe this is using iPads to hear other people who were alive at Shakespeare's time that we've never heard. Um, so that seems really exciting. Mm. So um. I love that so much. And I think there's a lot of work that um, some folks in my profession do. I'm working right now with um, a colleague at the University of Maryland, Purdom Lindblad, to think about the ways that we collect the historical record and present it in a way that contains it into these boxes that are really hard to access and really hard to experience serendipitously or with this um, with this feeling of of um, enchantment or um, or finding or like there's no power behind it when we put them into these boxes. So we're thinking about applying these like cool technological solutions to that where the data contained is dynamic in some way. So you're presented with it differently whenever you encounter it or when you come to this digital exhibit or digital collection that's online, you get to experience something. You don't get to just search for something, which I think we're also used to searching um, instead of experiencing when it comes to the way we use technologies. So we're thinking through those things. That's really interesting. As you're talking, I'm kind of like thinking about the difference between like going online to like try to find information in a database or something versus like you're walking into like somebody's library and you're like, oh, I wonder what's in here. And let me pick this up. And, you know, oh, this book, it, like this one's well worn and this one like it doesn't look like they even read it. And there's like all of this almost like metadata in being in a space with books. That I think we love and we crave that. I mean, like I have like in my head, like, oh, like what if you like came upon this like cabin and there were like, you know, a bunch of bookshelves in there. You'd be like, oh, I wonder what's on the bookshelves and like, you know, what the state is of the books and what that tells us about what happened here. Mm -hmm. And you just there isn't that feeling when you're searching for information online. Mm -mm. It's completely removed your your removed from that embodiment of being in the place and experiencing something that is so there was, I love that you brought up this example, because this is an example that has been kind of floating throughout the digital humanities for at least as long as I've been here, and probably as long as it's been around, like it's been around since the 50s, right? Um, It just was called humanities computing first, and then shifted to digital humanities. But this wanting to replicate the feeling of being a scholar or a person in the community that goes to whatever library and just browses the books and feels them 
um, you know, that that feeling of of just running your fingers along the spine of books somewhere, that is so hard to replicate uh, when it comes to technology. And if we don't think about ways to preserve that, then we're just going to be removed more and more and more from that kind of that feeling. And maybe because we're all scholars, like we really, really want that feeling. But I think it's also, you know, uh, community libraries are so important. Um, they're important for kids. They're important for folks that don't have resources, don't have internet access. So finding out a way to provide them with that experience is, um, is something that's like near and dear to my heart. Absolutely. So I have a little bit of a question about that, though, because in preserving those libraries, and this sort of goes back to what we were saying a second ago with the Shakespeare thing, how do we avoid... All right, I'm just going to say this sort of the way I'm thinking. How do we avoid just preserving the white people libraries? Mm -hmm. so. mm -hmm. Dave, you have asked the like heart of the question that um, that, <laughs> that is, I think, um, some, at the heart of some of the work that I do, um, you know, like prefaced by like I am a white person, you know, I have a lot of privilege um, and in certain ways. But there has been this like recent turn in my field towards thinking about these these frameworks that we're replicating over and over again that are just preserving white dudes. Um, <laughs> like the earliest digital humanities projects were about Walt Whitman, uh, Rossetti, um, you know, there was a really cool Cervantes project um, at my previous institution that I'll call out. But also, you know, the white dudes involved in the transcendentalism movement, right, in literature. And you can tell that I'm from literature. My degrees are in literature. But um, there's this recent movement kind of away from that, but also as we move away from that, there's this understanding that the work that we're doing is actually advocacy, and is actually um, anti-racist work, um, is uh, community-driven work. Um, I have a colleague, Alex Keel, who actually does this really cool archival work, like, you know, uh, uh, you know Latin American work, and like, especially um, that's, you know, very rooted in archives and digital collections, but also has this um, has a couple of projects that that he's involved in. Um, one of them is the Nimble Tense project, which is a way to immediately call on the people in the digital humanities community that have the skills to solve community problems. So one of the things they did was at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, when there was a shortage of um, medical equipment for doctors and nurses, they went to several 3D printing workshops and said, what will you donate? Collected money for the things they couldn't get donated and then 3D printed those things. And we don't think of 3D printing as humanities work, but it is. It's definitely digital humanities work. And in this way, it was also advocacy and community work. So really blurring the lines yeah. kind of between what we think of as like serving the community and doing research and incorporating technology into our lives in ways that are meaningful. You've again, like I'm going to pluck that. And again, <laughs> Athena, <laughs> thank you for that. That was amazing. Uh, as you're talking, Liz, I'm thinking about how, you know, kind of calling back a little bit to what you were saying about, you know, what data we have and sort of the invisible things that, you know, we don't even realize are there. And um, some of what you've been talking about in the last few minutes also, it seems like there's this 
this way that we can almost be zombified by the data that we already have collected um, or the information that we have already preserved, the technology we have already created that can keep us from maybe seeing the open-endedness that's out there or seeing the depth or the breadth of what's out there. And so like when it comes to that aspect of zombification, like, like do you see that as something that's a, a, a big problem in your field? Absolutely. Um, so in my field, that I love to quote this report, and I'm not going to remember the exact year that it came out, but there was this report from a major commission in Europe that basically said, if we don't pay attention to what we're digitizing and we don't make it basically um, as inclusive as possible, we are going to enter, and this is so dramatic, but we are going to enter into a digital dark age where we're just replicating the things that the, the, the systems that we know um, are you know, systematically corrupt, right? Um, we're just going to be replicating those things in anything that we produce. And all of the materials that we're digitizing, we have to pay close attention to what is missing. Um, otherwise, uh, the digital dark age will be upon us, right? And I think about that in terms of the apocalypse all the time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, honestly, as you're talking, I'm like, are we kind of in this mm-hmm. now? Are we in the digital apocalypse, the digital dark ages? Or are we coming out of it, right? Because it sounds like when you said you, like, so the research you were just talking about mm-hmm. with, the, with the flu, mm-hmm. right? So how did you guys go about looking at ways because it sounded like that was a way to give voice to people who had maybe been voiceless, right? So yeah. could, could you tell us a little bit more about sort of strategies people can use to do that? Absolutely. One of the things that I love the most about that work that we did is that we didn't just extract this demographic data and also, you know, combine it with this kind of um, you know, community source oral history research. But we also then took all of that stuff and presented it to the world in really tactile ways. So we created an actual interactive exhibit in the library here on the Tempe campus at ASU, where people could come into a room and they could walk through these hanging ropes, these braided hanging ropes, and they could unravel the hanging ropes because each of the threads of those ropes was actually one person that died during the flu pandemic. There were different color ropes for the things that were recorded in the historical record as opposed to the deaths that were, um, that, that we kind of estimated based on oral histories so that people could see, visualize and interact tactically with, um, with these lives that were lost. Uh, so explain to me what the these different colored ropes sort of looked like and what they represented. Absolutely. So as you walk through the exhibit, you actually, I spent so long on this, you actually walked into a room where the floor was a painted map of Arizona with all of the counties as they were um, in 1918, which again was not that long after Arizona became an official state. So um, remembering that history is important as well. One of the reasons that we had so much trouble finding the data is because Arizona didn't send any of this data to the government because it wasn't yet set up to send this data to the government. So at first we were like, oh, we can just go to D.C. and find all of this data. But no, it didn't exist. Um, We had to reconstruct it from literal death certificates. We went through over, 
I would say 2,000 individual death certificates where we looked at them. Most of them were handwritten, no typewriters. So we got to experience, <laughs> and it was so intense. Um, it was like two months of going home and working on this every for three hours every night. Oh, my goodness. So you're looking at these death certificates from 100 years ago mm-hmm. every and night. Every night, every night for a couple of months. Um, and then putting that into a spreadsheet and then taking that out of the spreadsheet and constructing a, a structure in a room in the Hayden Library here that could hold the weight of these deaths. So literally. Literally hold the weight of these deaths. Um, it, it was so heavy that the tarp that we hung um, started to cave in on itself. And we were like, gosh, that's just like the perfect metaphor for this whole <laughs> experience. Um, but it's also sitting with the data in that way, um, uh, b- both with the death certificates themselves, the individual death certificates, the spreadsheet that we put together, which was massive because um, it recorded all of the details of these lives. Um, also, because we couldn't search for flu, we had to look at every death that was in the historical record in 1918. So that I will never forget some of the really intense ones, which I won't actually talk about, but some of the really intense ones that were in there. And then taking that and physically hanging these individual braided ropes from the ceiling. Um, You know, there were black ropes, um, historical record, there were gray ropes, which we chose um, for those that we kind of reconstructed um, so that people would immediately identify um, with each other. So they're hanging over the counties in which these individual lives were lost. Uh, and you can see the concentration of them as well. So you can see, oh, that was Tucson. That was the mining community in this county, and et cetera. Uh, wow. Yeah. That sounds really powerful to be able to experience it in that way. I should also say that the other thing that happens when you walked into that exhibit is that you heard this song that was really just sounds. So we took that spreadsheet and we put it into a sonification software. And we then took the output of that sonification software, put it into GarageBand, and made a nine-minute song. So what did the different sounds represent? Mm-hmm. So the there were several, several different things. But the, things that, uh, the thing that I want to point out that was heartbreaking is that the highest cymbal um, and bell tones were... Uh, the youngest lives lost Mm. and the lowest tones, which were mostly drums, um, some, some other percussion instruments were um, people of color. Uh, And as the year progresses in the song, you can hear those sounds get more and more cacophonous as the pandemic in 1918 hit those communities. So, mm. so the song goes through the course of the year? It's chronological. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So I mean, basically what you did is you took all the sort of like analog information and then you like took it into digitize it and organize it. And then you outputted it into something that's very concrete, very 
tactile, something that people can interact with with their whole bodies and senses. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think that's the the you know that phrase return from quantified abstraction, right? We're lifting the individual lives and we're making them notes in a song. We're making them threads in a rope. Um, yeah, yeah, but you're also taking the step to digitize in that process because there are obviously benefits right to mm-hmm. like <laughs> being able to put things into a spreadsheet being able to organize things yes. the way we can with technology so so how do we get those benefits right that mm-hmm. we can from technology from digitizing without having it zombify us and make us blind to the other things that are existing in the world or you know forcing us into a frame or a set of biases that make it harder for us to see what's really going on. I love that so much. And I think so this is something that um, I've written about this just recently. And I've been thinking so I've been thinking about it a lot about how if you do not engage with these technologies um, in my field, and just in general, with this ethic of care, of knowing that there are people, even as these technologies progress, there are not only people that are behind the use of the technology, but also the creation of the technology. Um, And if we don't understand those two things, if we lose that as we rely more and more on them, then we we lose ourselves and the people around us. Um, And this is why we get things like algorithmic injustice and, and et cetera. What, what is algorithmic injustice? I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> um, I, my definition of algorithmic injustice, um, and there are several scholars that are so much better than me than talking about this, and I'm influenced by them all. One of them is Ruha Benjamin. Um, algorithmic injustice is the way in which these algorithms that run our lives, our digital platforms, our social media that push all of this content to us and organize the way that we um, honestly see the world, right, um, are based are based historically um, on systems of oppression and injustice. And that feeds into the ways that these technologies are uh, are structured and used. Um, yeah, some example. Definitely. So I, I will actually take so some recent research that I've been doing with a collaborator here at ASU, um, Sarah Florini. We have been looking at um, algorithmic oppression and injustice on TikTok, on the platform TikTok. And we've been working with actually a labor advocacy union of TikTok content creators to do this work. Um, and some of the things that we've found by applying these kind of um, analysis methodologies and working in community with these folks is that the algorithm at some points, some of this has been fixed by TikTok. In 2020, it was definitely still there. In 2021, it was definitely still there. Um, Will literally not allow you to describe yourself with um, the word black in your bio because it has been um, it has been tagged as a word that people are using to like bully people, right? But wow. then you can't define yourself, right? In your own bio. Um, and these are content creators that are relying on this 
for their livelihood. Like these are people that are using this money to survive and live. Um, and, you know, some of them have other jobs, but also this this is a job for them. So th- this is um, this is life work um, to do this kind of research. Uh, yeah. Wow. So when it comes to you know, this algorithmic injustice, when it comes to these systems of sort of data collection and preservation that can also perpetuate things that we don't necessarily want to perpetuate, we want to be more inclusive. Who Who is it that is benefiting from perpetuating these things? And or is it just sort of you know, accidental and circumstantial that these are the things that are being perpetuated? Like, is it a conspiracy or is it just an accident? <laughs> <laughs> um, I am always here to talk about conspiracies because um, I, I think what's so confusing right now, right, is that even history sounds like a conspiracy because the rhetoric of conspiracy theories is so ingrained in our minds now that when, I mean, I was just thinking the other day, um, yesterday was the, uh, the, I can't remember what anniversary, but the anniversary of the foundation of the Black Panther Party. And I was thinking about the legacy of the Black Panther Party and all the things that they did for their community and like how we have, you know, community protection um, methods because of them and like community schooling methods because of them. But also even thinking that way is not what we've been taught to think of as the Black Panther Party. So that feels like a conspiracy, even though it's history. Right. But I think that the to answer your question, Athena, techno capitalism is the thing that benefits how so as an entity techno capitalism is benefiting so is that like is that like a zombie or like are there people specifically that we're talking about or what are we talking about absolutely elon musk is a zombie like right like that's absolutely <laughs> true like i can't <laughs> i have to say that um absolutely he is but i think that the the institution of capitalism in general. And um, I, I talk about this a lot on Channel Z, but capitalism in general is a zombifying force. Techno-capitalism is this like insidious zombifying force because it's like with the emergence and like continued emergence of all of these technological advancements, um, it is just slowly creeping into every aspect of our lives, making us more productive, making us uh, not able to step away from our screens, right? Infecting us in all of these ways. And like, that is how I feel like this insidious force of techno-capitalism is, that's the thing that benefits, right? But wait, isn't capitalism supposed to be all about choice? (laughs) 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 Um, So true. Uh, uh, Yeah, right? Um, Yeah, so, so, so true. Would it be that the insidious force is almost just, I'm trying to think of how I would describe it, techno-fatigue and sort of lack of conscious choice. Like when I think about my own, like if you were to look at TikTok, right? Like I don't have a goal of making it look like people on TikTok are like better at skateboarding than the average human being or whatever, but I'll click on that, right? And I'll probably click on people who look wealthier and look, you know, better looking, you know, like these sorts of things I think that people are not consciously doing, but. Well, it's almost like the environment is set up in a way that nudges us towards certain choices (sighs) or even 
completely exhausts us so that we can't explore the options as much too, you know, so I, I mean, I think it's a, it's just a really interesting question of, you know, what is the actual relationship between the, you know, market society that we live in, both in terms of, you know, how money flows, but also in terms of how ideas and innovations flow, like what's the relationship between the sort of landscape of choice and, you know, what role are we playing or not in creating this environment that ultimately does zombify us. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, also, like, there might be a bit of a feedback loop where it's like, yes, we are participating in creating this environment that then zombifies us and makes it harder for us to make the choices that we might be wanting to make that might take into account a broader context because the choices that we're making are constraining the context that we're even existing within. Like we're creating our own matrix and then we're like living in it. Right. And not we're doing it consciously. We're creating our own apocalypse. <laughs> we're living in it. Okay. Yeah. Say, say more about that, Liz. How are we creating our own apocalypse? Yeah. So uh, what, what I just, I, I, listening, listening to y'all talk, it, it reminds me of this kind of cyclical n- nature of social. So let's just talk about social media, right? Because um, Dave, I think this, like what you've identified is so like, I have students that talk about this, right? That talk about how they get on Instagram, they see this false Instagram life, they then want to be a false Instagram life person. And so they get caught up in all of the ads that they're served and all of the things that these influencers are telling them to buy, right? And so that is kind of the the feedback loop of, 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 you know, this uh, capitalistic market economy that we're talking about, right, of techno-capitalism. And that's how social media uses it, I think. But, you know, we could also talk about the metaverse and how the metaverse is just corporations trying to sell you things, right? There are possibilities inherent in that, just like there are possibilities for like real community connection and uh, and, and, um, and and friendship and all of these like really important things on social media. But really what those things are there to do is to sell you things. Yeah, as you were talking and talking about like the Instagram influencer and being like, mm-hmm. oh, I want to have a fake Instagram life too. Mm-hmm. I couldn't help but think of like old school 80s, 90s pyramid schemes, right? It's like, <laughs> oh, there's this person and they have the greatest life and they're so successful at selling things. Don't you want to be that person? And everyone's mm-hmm. like, yeah, I want to be yeah. that person. And mm-hmm. But there are only so many people who can be that person. And eventually you burn through all of the social capital. Mm-hmm. And then like what happened to like all that like energy and effort and resources? It's kind of lost in a way. It's like burned through. Oof. So what's the better way? <laughs> Can't we just talk about how bad it is? <laughs> I do want to talk about the better way. I want to like move to hope. That's so important. But I will say that yeah. that multi-level marketing has just been so enhanced and expanded and blown up because of social media. So I see on my TikTok feed even, um, which is just so I use TikTok. Sorry, everyone. But um, I used to I watch TikTok at least 30 minutes a day, sometimes more. Um, and even I in this very specific for you page that I have cultivated, which is just like queer disabled people and people protesting things and also like fun memes about cats. Right. I will get people trying to to um, kind of uh, 
cultivate me into their cults of multi-level marketing, right? Um, There's this thing going around now where, oh, I will forget the word immediately, but it's basically uh, dream work folks that are saying, oh, uh, subscribe to the way that I view the world and then you can view the world the same as me, then give me $200 for my workshop, right? Um, And that um, I don't know, just like it's like I'm seeing the now history of um, that thing because of what you said, Athena. That is very interesting. And I mean, even just the idea of like multi-level marketing, what a great euphemism that is. I remember that. <laughs> yes, it's right? multi-level marketing for manifestation. That's the word. Um, oh. Manifestation is this movement where people are kind of co-opting actually something that like real people do and is their spiritual practice to make money off of folks and, um, you know, zombify them. Talk about zombification. I know. That's right? interesting. Yeah. yeah. Well, also, just for a moment about TikTok, like TikTok can be super fun. So like, you don't have to be apologetic for being on there <laughs> at all. I mean, I'm kind of jealous, actually, because like, I kind of want to like, have a TikTok feed where I could go in and be like, Oh, this is all this amazing stuff that I cultivated. But like, I don't have the patience to like cultivate a feed every once in a while, I give it to my daughter, I'm like, go in there and like some stuff for me. And mm-hmm. so she'll like help me sometimes. But I don't know, I, I, I kind of lack so, the commitment. So you're to- trying to present your and I do this on Twitter. You're trying to present yourself as more interested in TikTok than you actually are. Right? I, well, no. See, I am interested in TikTok. I just don't have I don't have the patience and commitment to make it happen. I'm trying. I'm really trying. Well, you want TikTok to be interested in you, is what it sounds like. Which well, maybe uh, maybe a theme, maybe I'm putting that on a theme. You're, yeah, I want Twitter to be interested uh, in me, right? <laughs> and and I really don't like Twitter. I've realized this that I'll oh, go on Twitter yeah. and I'll tweet and I'll be like, like my tweets. So and I've heard people say like they're like like other people's tweets, so they like your tweets back. And I'm like, okay, and I'll like mm-hmm. the tweets of people I like. But that doesn't actually mean I like their tweets particularly because I don't like tweets. I'm yeah. bored out of my mind. And so, but I've bought into this, right? Yeah. Hey, everybody, follow Dave on Twitter and like his tweets. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I'll like yours back, even though no, I don't really. I don't even like my own tweets. But like, <laughs> but there is this idea of like, oh, I've got to, I've got to win, right? I can't lose mm-hmm. a Twitter. I've been living my whole life and I haven't, I've never had a Twitter follower until last year what kind of life is that i kind of like i kind of like twitter because i'll learn stuff on twitter and i like meet people who are cool on twitter like neil i've like neil is part of this whole world because of twitter so for me like twitter has come through with interesting benefits and i learn about research i wouldn't learn about like you know from science twitter so i actually really like twitter and and to get back to the tiktok thing what I want from TikTok is I want it to feed me cool and fun things when I go into it, but I just am not been investing enough in it in order for it to feed me in the way I want it to feed me. So that's uh Oh, you just talked like you were a zombie, which is so <laughs> interesting. <laughs> feed me. <laughs> oh, that was amazing. Yeah, I actually kind of want to be zombified a little bit by these social media platforms. Mm -hmm. But I think I kind of like, I don't have enough of an addictive personality to like get hooked in. And so that means that the algorithm, like the the algorithms don't have enough data from me to get me 
Mm-hmm. Like really hooked. Can I yeah. ask a question having to do yeah. with sort of the way we train algorithms? Does this mean that if zombies take over, there'll come a point where people will have to evolve to have these like giant brains so that because the zombies will be able to pick their preference in brains the way we're picking our preference in influencers? Wait, I don't, wow. I don't know. I don't, so if zombies wait. are like algorithms. They're, or if they're like the end user, right? Like Because oh. right now we're always cult- we're cultivating our Instagram. Our influencers, we're sort of breeding them, essentially. Not breeding them in a traditional Culturally sense. Culturally right? selecting them in a way. Yeah, like yeah, or behaviorally like, selecting them. Yeah, so maybe maybe when people want brains, when zombies take over, then... Wait, they're going to like select, they're going to like domesticate us to have big brains so they can eat our brains? Is that what you're saying? exactly. Well, this is also like the plot of World War Z, right? Like the zombies don't want the sick brains. Oh, Um, they want the good brains. They only want the good, healthy brains. Um, So Athena, be careful. I think that you, (laughs) with your non-addictive personality, (laughs) are the healthy brain. I I do love this idea, though, is like the plot for a a zombie movie is that like the zombies Mm. are actually like taking us over and maybe like deciding like they're getting inside you they're becoming like maybe it's like the zombie microbiome and it gets in you and it changes your mating preferences so that all people with big brains are mating with each other and then it turns out the whole eugenics movement is actually people who are infected by these zombies that are trying to breed humans with the biggest brains so they can eat them but then everybody who wasn't selectively breeded Bread is going to be the survivors. They can do it all through mm-hmm. social media, right? So all a bunch of people media. who are like media. really yeah. smart start yeah. to suddenly become these really popular influencers, and then they're like, they get What's all happening? their and brains eaten. The zombies. I honestly think not only is this a plot of a movie, but the future. <laughs> <laughs> Although I guess they would have to maybe like just be harvesting them regularly. Right, because they don't want to just eat them all and then be done with it. Or maybe they do. Maybe the zombies have like a breakdown of their social order, and then they just go for all the humans with the big brains. And um, then they, it's like their apocalypse because then they don't have any brains to eat anymore. That's true. And the movie title is Double Apocalypse. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, or Brain Dead or Brain Double. <laughs> I like. That. I don't know. D- double yeah. Double Zombie Apocalypse. There's there's so a lot. lot there's a lot to do with this concept. We better. We better sell it yeah, before definitely. we put so, this episode out. <laughs> so, so can we can we ask how do we avoid this in real yeah, life? Yeah, yeah. Maybe not this specifically, but well, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think the question of you know, I mean, there's all of these forces that can and do zombify us through technology. Whether we're talking about like metaverse trying to sell us stuff, or mm-hmm. we're talking about the data that has just been collected you know, through whatever methods and means that were not carefully thought through historically, all of these systems that we are inadvertently zombified by that are based in digital technology. Yeah. So as we're moving forward, how do we fight the zombie apocalypse, the zombification apocalypse that could be threatening us or is maybe clearly threatening us through digital technology? So I think, um, you know, my my first uh, answer to any question like this, I think, is always resistance and education, right? Um, just as like major, like big level terms, resistance and education. So like resist the urge to buy everything that you see on Instagram, right? Because then Instagram will then know that they can sell you things. Um, so that, that just like is a level step, right? Um, uh, also, you know, 
resist the uh, the belief that these technologies will save you because they won't. Um, I think that, you know, people that have doorbell cameras, right, um, we now know that certain companies um, sell data to the police, right? Um, so resist the belief that doorbell cameras keep you safe when really they might keep you individually safe, but um, but they can also make your community more dangerous. Um, so those kinds of things. Um, and, you know, just education, all of the all of the things we talked about. Um, I think that there are folks out there that that don't know that social media um, has this like loop. Right. Um, of of uh, of ending with selling you things. Right. But I think I also want to say that there are people that are using social media platforms and technology for such good. Um, there's a tech for good organization that works on this, um, this kind of things, like thinking about the ways that technology can be used to um, solve systemic problems, systemic racism, systemic injustices. Um, I want to point to, I think, a story that I'm really excited to tell because it's a personal story. So at the beginning of the pandemic, um, a friend sent me an Instagram account that was collecting information from folks that were uh, not at risk, uh, not at high risk. Everyone was at risk, right, at the beginning of COVID. Um, everyone is still at risk. Um, nothing ever ends. But I uh, s- sent me this account information of people that were volunteering to go and get groceries, pick up medicine, just be in the world for people that were high risk. And I am a high risk person. So when I found this account, it was a really emotional moment for me. And it reminded me, I think, that the the, the power that, that these um, social media platforms can have. Because I was so isolated at the beginning of the pandemic, it was impossible for me to even get water. I couldn't get masks. Um, and I had neighbors that were bringing me those things. Um, and I had people that were shipping them to me from states away. Um, and that was all because of social media. Um, that's how I survived the first month of the pandemic. Wow. Yeah. So this, you know, human desire to help in times of need can come through through these digital platforms and does and does it absolutely does and it has since the beginning of our you know internet communication technologies um this was happening when folks were still connecting to the internet via aol cd-roms right they were organizing communities to help so yeah that's actually really interesting to sort of think about you know these two different like modes for like transaction and resource transfer that can happen through these digital platforms you have on one hand the very market driven like it's about selling stuff selling you stuff about zombifying you so that you will buy things and on the other hand about like connecting people in need to people who want to help them mm-hmm. um but unfortunately the algorithms are really only serving the first one they're not serving the second one so It'd be interesting to think about if we could redesign it so that the algorithms would be serving, you know, connecting the people who have things to give and want to help with the people who are in need. Like, what would that look like? Mm -hmm. So two things that I'll say. Um, One is that I love that you brought up that these platforms aren't designed to do this, because one of the things that immediately happens to that Instagram account is that because they weren't using people's faces in the first uh, picture and, you know, you scroll like Instagram, you can have multiple pictures in a post. Um, Instagram was not 
putting those posts in people's feeds because Instagram privileges faces um, in posts. And if you don't have a chronological order on your Instagram feed, you likely won't get a lot of text posts um, that are just pictures of text. Um, and so they had to start putting pictures of faces um, on this. So they have to like adapt to the algorithm instead of the algorithm serving them because they were doing something good. Um, and I'm also like, thank you so much for that question and that challenge, because that is some of the work that we're doing at the Lincoln Center for Applied Ethics here at ASU is that we're thinking of ways where we can bring together community members, scholars that work on these issues, scholars that don't work on these issues, and also technologists, people that work in these companies that want to do good, but they feel like they're constrained by the market economy. But there are ways that we can um, create technological solutions that privilege mutual aid and community. Amazing. And so by following your work and the work of the Lincoln Center for Applied Ethics here at ASU, which I'm a proud member of, by the way, <laughs> it's awesome. Thank goodness. Uh, <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> so we can keep up to date about new developments and we'll post about them on Zombified Media too as they're, as they're coming out. We'd love to kind of keep current with the activities and going on, goings on and insights that are coming out of your work and the Lincoln Center for Applied Ethics. Yeah. Could I ask, could we maybe one time either as another um, podcast or as an episode show, could we talk about just ways people are doing good, using this mm -hmm. stuff to do good and focus on some of those? Because I think that'd be really yeah. interesting. Well, we should absolutely. We should do a Channel Z show. We should do an Undead Live about that. So I'm writing it down right now. I can't wait to be a part of that. Awesome. Okay. All right. So stay tuned for that. And Liz, thank you so much for being with us here today it was amazing getting to talk to you and being together in person oh in it's person. amazing to be able to see everybody's face and mm -hmm. you know not through a screen this it's is my phenomenal. first time meeting dave in real life you're a so, real person i, am. I so, mean maybe a robot still i'm not sure but that, that's um, true but now yeah. they've got like not just head technology. I've got arms. You've got, got a full legs. body. Yeah. So, okay, amazing. And yeah. none of us are zombies yet, so I feel very grateful to be here. Um, thank you both. I do love brains, though. That's true. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm waiting for the vegan substitute for brains, and then I'm totally in. So. <laughs> Liz, thank you so much for sharing your brains with us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, it is an honor to be um, here with y'all today. I am a big time fan. So thank you. We are such a fan of yours. Yeah. So thank so, you so much. And, yeah. And everyone should check out. Well, we'll do an outro, but everyone should check out your show on Channel Z. So yes, well. absolutely. All right. Okay. And if the whole world says that we're crazy, we don't need nobody anyhow. But if you
Zombified is a production of Arizona State University and Zombified Media. And we would like to thank everyone who helped make this possible, including the Arizona State University Department of Psychology. The Interdisciplinary Cooperation Initiative and the President's Office at ASU. The Lincoln Center for Applied Ethics. The brains, all the brains that help make this podcast, including Tal Ram, who does our sound. Neil Smith, who also sort of digitizes us into pictures of zombies. Yeah, I mean, Tal and Neil are our, you know, humanity. Did our digital humanitizers? What, uh, wait, uh, humanity. Wait, <laughs> did digi- are humanity digitizers or are digital humanitizers? They're both, I think. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> they they wear a lot of digital humanity related hats. Yes, uh, and Lemmy, um, who composed and performed our awesome song "Psychological," which even after many years still gets stuck in my head. Sometimes I have to say, Dave. There you go. It's, so that is a, a digitized version of Lemmy that you're carrying around now in your brain. Oh, but now it's like a it's like it's an like analog a, version, a re-analogized version of the digitized version of Lemmy. That's then encoded as brain cells, right? Yeah. So that because it went from yeah, it's yeah. a lot. So yeah. anyway, thanks, Lemmy, <laughs> <laughs> and thank you to our whole Z team. Um, we're so grateful for your help with uh, you know making our social media presence happen and. Also, uh, making our shows accessible to the hearing impaired by um, transcribing them. So, oh, you're that's awesome. really nice. Yeah. Which also then, wait, that's another layer of digitization because then, wow, that's. And then if they use a screen reader, then that's, yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot of layers that this goes through. So, yeah, before yeah. it gets into people's brains. Absolutely. So. And speaking of layers to go through to get into people's brains, you can <laughs> follow us and support us <laughs> on on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook, on TikTok. Um, you can also go on Patreon and subscribe to support us. Um, if you haven't figured it out yet, we don't have any ads because we're anti um, zombification unless it's the kind of zombification that you really want and we think you probably don't want to be zombified by ads like interrupting us every 15 minutes. Seriously. Ads are the worst. Speaking of which, buy our merch. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. yeah, go on uh, our website, uh, zombified.org and uh, there you can find t-shirts, mugs, stickers, um, any anything that you want to buy, we will sell you. Exactly. Yeah, what if it's not on the website, just send us a note. We'll make it happen. So, um, and thank you to all of you for listening to Zombified. We are your source for fresh brains. I know it's crazy, but it seems so logical. I can't deny that there is something supernatural with you. Makes me act the way